We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week, we're talking about creativity and how to make your brain more flexible. Daniel produced this episode. Daniel, what's it about? So today in the studio, we had Rosamund Irwin, the journalist, in conversation with Leonard Mladenov. Leonard is an American physicist and also a writer on the TV series Star Trek. He has a new book out called Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Constantly Changing World. And it's all about how you can change your thought patterns to become more dynamic and more creative. It's a fantastic episode. We hope you enjoy listening. And if you do enjoy listening, please do try and review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Hello, I'm Rosamund Irwin, a journalist at the Sunday Times, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, first of all, and thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I thought we should start with the most logical, log- the most logical place, which is explaining what elastic thinking actually means. That's a great place to start. <laughs> well, you can put human thinking on a spectrum where at one end is the usual logical, analytical, rational thinking. And in that kind of thinking, you follow the rules of reasoning to get from your premises to your conclusion. And that works really well when you're facing some problem or issue that you've seen before where you have it already framed, the, the issues, and you know what the approach should be, and you just apply logic to get to the answer. At the other end of the spectrum is elastic thinking, and elastic thinking is not rule-based. In in fact, it's about breaking rules or or even how you invent the rules. How do you form the framework by which you attack or analyze a problem? What assumptions do you use, or how do you ferret out the implicit assumptions that you've been using if, say, if if your old approach hasn't been working? Um, It's it's all about, like, new ideas, new ways of looking at things, and really at a more more fundamental in some sense than uh, analytical thinking because it's how you um, first assess and understand what the issues are and what the problem and your goal, what your goals are. And then you can apply logical and analytical thinking to get there. Um, you talk in, in the introduction about scripted behavior. And what I wonder, and you talk a lot about how animals exhibit a lot of that, where we think perhaps an animal is being kind to its young. It's actually learned a pattern of how it should behave. 
Um, and I wondered how much of our behavior is actually scripted. More than you think. <laughs> uh, most animals get along largely using these uh, what psychologists call fixed action, fixed action patterns. Uh, that's they are it's exactly scripted or programmed behavior. I uh, talk in uh, in the book about, for instance, a mother goose sitting on a nest, and if an egg rolls out, she reaches over with her head and very lovingly, seemingly lovingly, pulls the the egg back into the nest. Uh, but that's not really thoughtful behavior at all. If you put a crumpled beer can or even a, a volleyball next to the nest, she will reach over in the same way and, and try and bring it in. There's a trigger, which is some foreign object near the nest causes this um, pattern of behavior. That's why it's called a fixed action pattern. And when the reason it works for a, a goose is because usually there aren't scientists around putting crumpled beer cans and testing it out. So things that are near the nest are eggs and it's a situation that uh, these animals have encountered over and over again over evolution, and that's why they have such behaviors to handle situation, routine situations. And um, but when a situation changes, it doesn't work so well. And we humans have fixed action patterns too. Psychologists investigate that we're not so aware of that we, you know, simple one is for instance autopilot if you're driving to work or taking public transportation even, where you unthinkingly follow a path A to B to C without really consciously calculating where you're going. I mean, when I uh, was teaching at Caltech, I had my own pattern of driving from home to the office. And I found myself at times uh, when I wanted to go somewhere else, where, but uh, a place where the start was the same route as Caltech, finding my way toward Caltech before I realized that I'm on autopilot. I should have turned right back there instead of left, but I'm used to turning left all the time. And my mind is thinking about one thing and my autopilot's taking me somewhere else. But even in social situations, we sometimes use fixed action patterns. Uh, in the book, I talked about a couple of interesting experiments where that is, but you, you often re react to people in a kind of unthinking way or automatic way that you're not really scrutinizing consciously. Uh, even uh, in close relationships at home with uh, friends or your your spouse or partner, um, people get into these uh, sometimes uh, actually uh, non-optimal ways of interacting with each other where they're just repeating old old patterns. And those are really, in a way, semi-autopilot types of reactions. So we, we do that. It's really the most... Um, it's a very basic tool in, in the animal brain toolkit, and it's a very old and tried and true way of uh, of behaving for when when uh, for for lower animals when things don't change, and even for humans for routine situations. But uh, elastic is about how you have to think when times are changing, <laughs> and when you uh, face novelty and you have to adapt. And for that, uh, they don't work very well at all. <laughs> Um, you talk about how sort of everything is like the speed of change is change is speeding up effectively. And um, there was a book out a couple of years ago called The Great Acceleration. It was all about the pace of change and how everything is happening so much faster now. Um, what? Uh, how does that affect the need? I mean, presumably that means we need a lot more elastic thinking. Right. That's why. That's why I wrote the book because I. I w w people have been talking for a while about how the. Quickly, things are changing, and you know they they have been talking about that really for quite a while, uh, because change in society seems to be exponential, and so the that really means it feeds on itself. The more you have, the faster it's going to grow. And though it's been happening for a while, human 
as a species, have a great capacity for change. We really, one of the strengths that helped us survive and keep from becoming extinct when we were living in the wild was our ability to adapt and to find new resources, new sources of water, food, uh, places, to, uh, ways to shelter ourselves, ways to get food and creating tools and, and so forth. Uh, that was really our strength more than our physique. Um, but um, though that's our strength, uh, as the amount of change in society has grown and grown and grown, it's, it's, it's just starting to reach the point now where it's really taxing our, our limits. And that, I think, is causing a lot of turmoil in society and in politics all around the world. And in, order, and in, in business, too, uh, the, the lifespan, for example, of a, of a business about 50 years ago, of a, a Fortune 500 business was about 60 years, and now it's about 20. And we can all think of the blockbusters, Kodak, um, you know, um, Encyclopedia Britannica's that went under uh, because they can't adapt. And in our personal lives, uh, we don't thrive really if we can't adapt either anymore. And so uh, it's becoming really important now to understand what elastic thinking is and how to nurture it. Not that we don't need the old logical analytical thinking. We still, once we get to a certain point, we need to reason things out logically. But we also need that more uh, creative, innovative, imaginative, adaptive way of thinking uh, more and more today. I want you to take us way back in human history and then we'll jump to, to jump forward. But um, you write in the book about how our species was actually hit by this great catastrophe 135,000 years ago. And actually very few of us, so, you know, we actually would have been on the endangered list. There was sort of around 600 people left. Anyway, I'll let you, you tell this. But, um, but actually, at that point, we saw effectively sort of the survival of the most adventurous, perhaps, or maybe those able right. to think elastically. Right, so um, most humans died. It was a, I think they believe it was a climatic catastrophe that happened. Uh, in that case, not caused by humans, but the Earth does go through cycles. And, and when it does, when the Earth goes through cycles, it causes extinctions. And we almost became one of them. But certain of our species... Uh, had had certain genes that made them more exploratory, adventurous. They had, uh, today they call it, psychologists call it neophilia, which the love of the new. And those individuals uh, were better or had a, in their already discovered new sources of food, water, and new places to go, and they managed to somehow get around this and survive. Uh, and after that time, there seemed to be a great explosion of uh, exploration of humans spreading all around the world over the next tens of thousands of years. And scientists think that that particular incident was a kind of a, uh, a filter, a genetic filter that filtered out the, the less exploratory and really increased the exploration uh, aspect of our psyche. And ever since then, we've been uh, moving all around and, I mean, much more than other animals, going to all corners of the earth, all, all habitats, snow, heat, water, dry, whatever it is, you'll find people there. Um, we know, though, that it doesn't always end well being the super adventurous person. You give the example in the book of, um, of Timothy Treadwell, who most people know as the man who lived with bears. And uh, obviously, it did not end well for him, for example. So is there a level at which it's good to be adventurous but not to go over? Right. There, there is. And for a particular society or group or species, it's good to have a spectrum. 
to have those that are more adventurous. Uh, they also take risks. They discover in today's society, they, they innovate, they, they, they invent and they discover, but in the old days or in the nomadic days, they would discover or find new sources of food or places to live. Um, but it's often, at least in the old days, that often involved danger. So they, you may explore something, but you could fall into quicksand or fall off a cliff or what you find is a hive of deadly bees or a bear that eats you like Timothy Treadwell was a great explorer and got eaten by the bears that he lived with. So um, so there are there – are, the, the reason I suppose that, that we're not all super, super exploratory is that there is a, a downside to that. So uh, evolutionarily, it's not good to be over the edge. Uh, but today, in, in today's world, I think the, uh, to a certain point at least, the more exploratory you are, the, the better you can adapt and the better you can survive or the more you ex- you're accepting of change and willing to adapt and maybe even welcome change, neophilia, uh, then the, the better able you are to thrive in the times that, that are changing. You can't stop the times from changing. Uh, and what you have to do is see how you, you should change yourself. In the book, you have a quiz that sort of finds out how adventurous you are, how much of a neo neophiliac. I don't, yes, know, I don't know what the term would be. Um, and and I doing it, I thought, well, ten years ago, you know, when I was in, when I would have been in my twenties, I would have been scoring far higher than I am now. And I think a lot of people could probably mm. recognise that as you get older, you become slightly less adventurous. On average, I mean, I mean there will be exceptions to that, certainly. But um, what is that process that's happening that makes us at 20 think doing something a bit mad is, about, is a wonderful <laughs> idea? And then, you know, 10 years later, you think, no, I'd rather, I'd rather do cocoa and slippers and, and that <laughs> sort of life. Well, the, the human mind is really an idea machine. And most of the ideas that your mind comes up with, you're not even aware of. Your, your brain on an unconscious level is constantly making associations. Uh, if I say Bologna, uh, you might think of the cold cut, you might think of the city, you might think of spaghetti bolognese, um, you might think of the word, at least in America, they say bologna, which means s- s- stupid, and, and that will get you off uh, on some other direction. And, and your mind is always, um, that's how you get ideas and, 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 and how you even uh, put together thoughts and memories is by associating concepts with each other. But most of that goes on outside of your consciousness and you're getting all these ideas, but if they all streamed into your consciousness, you'd be overwhelmed, drowned by them. And so what happens is only the most reasonable, conventional, whatever your brain in some way thinks is most likely to work, they reach your consciousness and then you act on them or get those ideas. And and so that's, I talk a lot in the book about how that works because that's really the source of creativity, originality is trying to to be in touch with those unconscious ideas, to not be afraid of being silly, being wrong, having stupid ideas. But what what happens is uh, that the, the filters that keep those out don't mature till you're 25 years old. So what the you know when you're younger, you the ideas come to you and they don't seem stupid; they seem reasonable. The younger you are, in some ways, the more outrageous the ideas that that you might think of. That's why kids say. Uh, you know, they're so unfiltered, right? That's because that's literally because their filters aren't developed yet. And um, so you can do, you know, weird things. As you get older, uh, one thing that happens up until 25 at least is you become more conventional because those filters mature. You know, there are other reasons that you don't do that. I mean, I, I remember when I was, I think, maybe 
10, I jumped off the roof of a building just for fun because like a superheroes do, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, really hurt, hurt my ankle. And, and, uh, that was kind of an unfiltered kid thing to do where you don't think about the consequences or the idea. I mean, it would never come to me today if I'm on the roof, you know, on a building, oh, let me jump off. But, but also you learn because you hurt yourself. <laughs> so part of it is learning that certain things are dangerous and, and don't do them. Part of it is you don't even get the notion to do those things. But what's interesting is that once you do let, let the filters react, it, it, it's, it, it's seductive. Uh, the, the idea is, you know, you don't, it's not like, oh, the filters open up, crazy idea comes to your mind. You go, oh, that's a crazy idea, and you move on. That can happen, but often it, 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 it really doesn't. There's a tendency once they come to your mind that they seem so real. So John Nash was a famous mathematician, and um, and. He was also schizophrenic for many years, and after he came out of it later in life, one of his friends asked him, how could someone so brilliant as you have thought earlier that he were involved in some aliens, conspiracies were going on, and you're in the midst of this, and how could you have thought that was real when you're such so brilliant? He said, uh, well, those ideas seemed as real to me as those brilliant mathematics ideas. So once the ideas come to you, they can seem very real and reasonable um, once your filters let them through. You talk as well about there's a sort of myth that we're all we're all hostile to change, and and rightly you say in the workplace when people talk about that that's because in a workplace when people talk about change that always means job cuts, yeah. <laughs> and I think lots yeah, of people would recognise yeah. it is a euphemism. But actually, of course, lots of us do embrace a lot of change, and I, I was thinking this in, in the context um, of you know people will put themselves through the biggest change of all in their lifestyle, which is having children. Now, of course, historically, you know, there's a big pattern of us <laughs> reproducing. But actually, the change in your lifestyle now as a, as a, in, a, in the modern day is so vast. But people are always willing to embrace certain kinds of change. Um, and otherwise, our species wouldn't be here. Um, but, but why do you think we've got this idea that, it, that, that actually people don't like change? And, and, and how actually, I mean, how actually do we react to change? Um, as a species, we seem to have embraced an awful lot of it. We have, and and that's really within you know our, our character. That's why we have a word like boring, or you don't want a, a, a repetitive job, and and uh, and the uh, concept of boring is quite new. Kind of, yeah, so yeah. that that really is just a hundred or two hundred years old. The, the concept of even being boring, because in the far past, uh, most jobs and most of life was just by nature repetitive and what we would call boring. No one knew anything that was not boring in a sense because uh, even to get 10 miles, you have to walk for hours, right? And, and uh, I mean, you might appreciate nature, but, 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 but it's just that that, that, that that process of walking for hours or taking a stagecoach for two weeks to get to another city was in some ways inherently boring or repetitive, at least if you're, or you're working on clearing the land, you're just chopping trees all day. And as the industrial evolution happened and we began to have more leisure time and more variety in life, then we got the concept of boring. We And people definitely appreciated the not boring aspect. So that's um, really um, part of all of us. But the the idea that people are change averse, it really comes uh, from the business world. And I, I've noticed a huge disconnect when I was writing the book and reading psychology papers that talk about neophilia and business finance papers that talk about change aversion and how could these both happen. You know, there are individual differences amongst people. But in general, the the psychologists said we're neophilic as a race or as a, as a, as a species. And 
and the business people said we are averse to change. But what they really meant, as you brought up before, it was really a euphemism. When they say change, they mean job cutbacks or increased workload or uh, retraining yourself, which takes a lot of effort, or moving in a different direction, which is a risk. So if you, you're happy with your job and now you're moving in another direction, there's a risk that you're going to be unhappy or you won't be able to do it or whatever. And that people naturally don't like. If, you're, if your boss comes to you and says, I want you to do, you know, I need you to do more work for the same pay, obviously you're, they, the boss thinks it's change aversion to you. It's just negative. But if your boss said, hey, our company is striving to be less efficient, I want you to do 10% less work for the same pay, who would be averse to that? They would be talking about how much we love change, right? So I, th- I think that's really where they, the idea that we're change averse comes from. It, it, and in, in your life, you may feel in some ways that you're averse to change, but that's just because perhaps you like things the way they are. You're not usually averse to change when you don't like the way things are. So, it, you know, if your um, plumbing is leaking constantly and suddenly someone changes it and it's and it doesn't leak anymore, who's going to not like that? It's What you don't like is when, uh, you know, I don't know, you're – you're, you're, you're happy with the way your phone works and now they have a new operating system that they update and now suddenly you don't understand things or certain, there's certain new glitches or bugs that are introduced. You don't like that. So we might, we might think we're change averse because we don't want the update on our phone, but it's because you have some experience that it causes you issues, right? If your phone's not working very well and they have an update with just bug fixes, no one's going to mind that. Okay, so I asked you to take us way back in history earlier, but I'm going to get you to take us even further back in hum- in actual animal evolution. Um, when we were evol- evolving from, you know, sort of creatures with very uh, little in the way of, um, well, very little in the way of thought or any thought, um, what was the advantage, first of all, of evolving a brain? And how did animal, you know, how did that become an advantage? And then... What are the ways in which now we we see that you know that evolution continue in the present day when, as we've said, everything is moving so quickly? Well, so the first animals were unicellular. First life was unicellular, and uh, it just these are things that would like bacteria that would just react uh, when nutrients were there, envelop them, absorb them, and so on. Uh, and ev- eventually, uh, what evolved from that were Senses, like smell was probably, I think, the first one, uh, which is not that different from what the bacteria bacterium is doing. Uh, it's sensing chemicals and reacting to the chemical in the presence. And uh, eventually, other senses uh, evolved, and also the ability to move at will evolved. Uh, you, now you can sense, uh, I don't know, hot or cold, or that there's something over there that you want, and, and you have to get there or get away from a predator or whatever it is. And... So in order to coordinate to the senses with motion, uh, we had to, inv- uh, or, or living things had to involve nerve, nerve at first before there were brains, some primitive nervous systems, and they eventually evolved the brains, uh, which really handled this, the, 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 the interpreting the senses and reacting to the senses and motion. And over the eons of time, the brain specialized parts of the brain for uh, specifically for sight or or sound or motion and and um, for doing other information processing calculations and it brains got more and more complex uh, to where we are today. The last thing to evolve probably is what people call consciousness, and it's no one really understands what that is anyway today. A lot of people think about it, they work on it, they say 
there's theories, all sorts of theories. Nobody really understands, I think, why that evolved. Uh, uh, people speculate that, you know, or again, it's for the same idea of change where um, what your conscious mind can do is override these automatic processes that most animals go by where you're going, um, you know, uh, I normally react this way. I'm driving to work, but, oh, no, stop, stop. I should go a different way now or I'm or, hey, we're starting to fight. Stop this. Let's stop this and see what we're, what's really going on <laughs> or whatever it is. And uh, so consciousness, in a way, is a way uh, of rising above those programs that all animals develop to survive and, and being able to deal with new situations. You talk about, um, well, you quote a line from Karl Popper that all life is problem solving. And you have a particularly ex interesting example of somebody who's unable even to make quite fundamental decisions, let alone problem solve, um, which is this patient EVR with a, um, a, a benign brain tumor. And after he's had a, a chunk of his brain removed, he can no longer make any decisions. I mean, he can't decide where to go for dinner. He can't sort of do any, uh, you know, he can't prioritize things in a workplace so that he can actually function. And I wonder what we can learn from that patient about the way we think. Well, EVR was uh, fascinating um, because uh, he illustrated uh, the importance uh, of the reward system in your brain and really the motivation for why we do things and how deep that reaches into uh, you know, us as humans as problem-solving machines. Because you might say, well, in a way, it, it, pleasure or reward, uh, what does that have to do with, with problem-solving? I mean, I know that I, you know that I need to eat. Maybe the, uh, the, the promise of pleasure is what's driving me to want to solve that problem, but does it really uh, help me solve the problem? And it shows the intimate connection that it has. So the reason he couldn't make any decision, well, let me go back and talk about when he first had his brain tumor. What's interesting is uh, he started to have problems in life, didn't know what was wrong. The doctors examined him, gave him all these uh, tests, and said, you're fine. Doctors like to do that. If they can't find what's wrong, they say, you're fine. They go, wait a minute, I can tell myself. You know, That doesn't hurt, they'll say. That doesn't hurt, you're fine. But... You know they, what they what they were doing was testing his uh, his intellectual capacity, his analytical thinking, his logical reasoning, his his memory, his knowledge. All that was fine, and he knew he even knew could make moral judgments. He could say, "Is it okay to kill somebody?" No, he knew that it wasn't. So all, but these are all the, on the logical analytical reasoning. They didn't really test his elastic thinking at all, uh, and or you know his ability to problem to, to set up problems, to look at problems, to set goals. And eventually, they, they did figure out, uh, researchers who were studying him, not the doctors who were treating him, figure out what was wrong with him. And the, and the problem is that uh, in the absence of any reward system, you have no way of judging uh, what choices to make. So if he wanted to go to a restaurant because he was hungry, he knew I could go to a restaurant, he would go to the restaurant and he would try to decide like we all do, even unconsciously, like what restaurant do I want to go to? So he'd look at the, he'd consider the menus, the prices, the, how far away it is, the atmosphere, all these different things. And, and then he'd think, oh, this is restaurant A, restaurant B, restaurant C. And then he'd start comparing them. But he had no feeling about, do I want Indian food versus Japanese food, a noisy place or a quiet place? Uh, he, he, there was no way to make the judgment. So he would just start comparing these things endlessly. 
and never make a decision because he had no endpoint that he was trying to reach, no feeling like, I, I, I want this. So everything was just a kind of a, a data comparison with no real uh, criteria regarding what's better, and he would get totally frozen, go in circles, and couldn't decide anything. And his life really didn't go too well after that. And mm. um, where did our own reward system with our, in our brains? I mean, how do we, uh, you know, do does do we get a sort of hit from simply making a decision? Is there something that comes? back to us and feels like that's a success in itself. Uh, yes, we, we do. There's a certain satisfaction from f- people get from figuring something out, from making a decision, from accomplishing something, and that's all intimately tied to the reward system. And so uh, in the book, I give a, a few questionnaires, they call them inventories, where you can test your neophilia, you can also test your reward, your reward, uh, goal de- reward dependence. And these are all certain aspects of elastic thinking that uh, help us uh, be innovators and adapt to change. And, uh, you know, even though humans act, they're both, they're neophiliac, they they act according to rewards, and uh, another one is mindfulness. We all have these tendencies, but we there are individual differences, so you can see where you stand. And people who are very high, too high in the reward scale, just like too high in the neophiliac scale, can lead to problems in life uh, where, let's say, you're overly concerned with status, prestige, money, or whatever it is, uh, sex, and you can you, you can uh, you know have behavioral problems. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and totally unmotivated, you can sit there like a lump on a log and never get a job or do anything. And so, ideally, you're somewhere in a certain sweet spot. But uh, the, the people on the higher end. Uh, in, in both the reward and the ophiliac, the mindfulness, and all these areas, they tend to have a little bit more uh, capacity to adapt and to deal with change. And can we improve that? Is it something that we can work on? We're yeah, so that's condemned. a big part of what I try, what I write <laughs> yeah. about is what you can do, uh, either you know as exercises or things that you can incorporate into your life to to depending on which area you need help in. Because there's no silver bullet where I say do this and you'll suddenly be a creative genius, but but there are things you can do depending on what area we're talking about to to broaden your thinking in general. To if you really incorporate them in a way to your lifestyle or to your habits, like meditation is is good. It's good for many things, but it's really good for your mindfulness. Um, for neophilia, uh, one thing that's good is to um, Expose yourself to new things. So if, if you go to the restaurants and always order the same thing, uh, make yourself order something different. I mean, even if you don't always order the same thing, just try new and different weird things. And sometimes just like Treadwell with the bears or the guy who gets falls in the quicksand by exploring, you know, you'll get burned and you'll have a bad dinner. But you have to realize that, that, that that's okay. I mean, another big part of elastic thinking is to get used to failure and to being wrong and to accepting that that taking chances is okay and taking risks okay, your, your filters will not let through uh, good ideas if they're afraid uh, of failure and being wrong. So be wrong. Go to the restaurant and have a crappy meal. <laughs> order the weird thing and go, that was weird. Or nobody. I, I like to ask people, the waiter in the restaurant, what does nobody order? <laughs> What's the least popular dish? What's the strangest combination you have? Or if you're going to a bar or even to a cafe – I thought, oh, this is a drink that no one has ever ordered. It's on the menu with, I don't know, turmeric and seaweed in it. 
And, and I'll go, great, let me try that. And even if I, sometimes I like it and I discovered something new, which is what exploration is about. And, but even when I get killed and don't like it, I'm not, thankfully, I'm not literally killed, but it, 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 it's something that opened my eyes to new realms. It kind of, it's almost like you're wide and imagine that you're going through life with blinders that keep you seeing straight ahead and you open it up to the left and to the right a little bit. And you might see some stuff you don't want to see. It's bad stuff, but you also see now that they're open, you'll also see good or new stuff that's good to see. And the whole idea of it is to open that up so you're always like more open and getting more ideas and having more uh, thoughts, weirder, wilder, more original thoughts. And um, sometimes the thoughts and the ideas are not so good, but along with them come some good ones that other people won't have. And so that's to your advantage. Are we too afraid of failure? And, and is that something... I mean, how do, how do you combat that, that fear of it going wrong and it, you know? Well, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I, you combat that, one, is by not running from your failures, but by remembering them. You don't not only even mean remembering them for what you learned from the failure, but just that from learning that you're okay after the failure. Uh, uh, I'm, when I was first started to be an author and getting on radio and TV, I, I, was, I would be nervous in interviews that I would say something stupid, which we all say, right? And then afterwards, after I said stupid things, I realized I was fine afterwards and nobody really cared. <laughs> or they didn't nobody tell me. Noticed. Maybe they didn't notice. No so they, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, you and know, perhaps it wasn't stupid to them. Or, yeah. You know, when I first started skiing, too, I, I was living in Germany. We went to the uh, Alps all the time. It was I was in Munich. We were near. And my girlfriend, that I was, who I was living with, was an avid skier, and I was learning how to ski. I realized that I would be very stiff and, uh, you know, I have difficulty skiing because I was afraid of falling. And, and the later the day it went on, the worse I would be because I wanted to get through the day without falling and I didn't fall yet, right? So I, I learned that when I got the first thing I do is like tumble over, get that out of the way, and then I'd be like loose and fine. And that's a good way of looking at life. I, I, I think that if you're not like that, then you're not going to – you know, you're not going to try. You're not going to be original. Mm, and you talk about questioning those deeply held, entrenched views that we have as well. And you did that yourself. Um, you obviously are not. Uh, you do not like Trump's uh, proposed wall between the U.S. And, and Mexico. And when you question something that you naturally have such a deep aversion to, how do you actually question it fairly? To think, you know. I'm, when when you really obviously feel very passionately that that is wrong, how do you question it in a way that actually helps you sort of intellectually look at an idea and try to understand the other side? Well, that's a very important uh, uh, skill or talent. And in, as a physicist, it's something that you really have to nurture too because uh, if you believe in the wrong thing, you can waste a lot of time move going in the wrong direction. You can waste years on something that is misguided, but you don't realize it because maybe it was your idea or you, uh, or, you know, look back at the turn of the century, uh, last century, where we had Newton's laws and we had certain issues with the speed of light and people, the best people, scientists in the world were working hard to explain those, those, those issues using Newton's laws. And then this, this guy called Einstein came along and just used high school math, really. But what he did did was um, uh, didn't he questioned those assumptions? He questioned. He he said, "What are the assumptions we're making? And what if they're what if they're wrong?" And then he you know 
really pretty quickly came up with special relativity and overturned everything uh, just by looking at the assumptions. So uh, as, you know, what I, so in physics, that's really important, but I think it's important in, in life too. It's just important in terms of solving and problem solving physics outside of physics um, in business uh, encyclopedia Britannica, uh, you know, they were a pretty big company and then the Wikipedia comes along and um, it's not just that they put the encyclopedia online, but Wikipedia had a whole new business model. Like they don't hire experts. They don't pay the people to write the stuff. They don't check it. And yet it works. You know, they, they, Britannica couldn't accept this model because it was like Einstein, like the people using Newton's laws, you know, they couldn't believe that that could work, right? You don't charge for it either, by the way, right? And yet they're a business and they're still going and Britannica's out and so is Kodak and so is Blockbuster and other other companies. And so in all areas of our life and business, you have to question the assumptions. So what I do is in politics, it's kind of interesting to do. Uh, I like to take ideas uh, that I really don't believe in and try to make convince myself or see it from another point of view. So since my parents, uh, you know, were Holocaust survivors, came to America as refugees. In fact, my father tried to come uh, before the war and couldn't get in because of uh, uh, the same kinds of barriers that we have today because uh, he kind of saw it coming and he lost his whole family because the U.S. or other countries wouldn't let him in. Um, and they finally came after the war. So, you know, I have a certain uh, uh, natural disposition toward that issue. And... Uh, about you know I, I I would look at all pretend I'm on a debate team and try and take the other side and and rather than vilify the people who feel differently try to see what what makes what would someone who I respect how would they look at it and and really and I have it it's kind of changed my view on it I instead of being totally against it you know I go well okay most people don't believe in totally open borders even a left wing right wing it's not a political issue really they don't really believe in totally open borders. Um, so if you have laws, do you enforce them? Most people would say, yeah, we, you know, we should enforce our laws and so on. You go down the line. And so in the end, it just becomes a very practical issue. Like, do, do walls work? Why would you have a wall all the way? Maybe wall a little bit, barriers here or there. And, you know, it becomes such a technical issue that all the charge and emotion is taken out of it. And then when you look at it later, you can kind of understand a little bit of both sides and go, well, I feel this way, they feel that way. But you don't think they're necessarily evil. You can do that, I'm sure, with Brexit. I was going to say, I was I'm kind of a news junkie. I'm always reading, and you know, we get plenty of news about Brexit, but it's so hard. I, I, I have a trouble understanding all, all the issues and the, the, the so many different sides of it. But uh, that's something that probably, if, if people in, in Parliament uh, uh, did this exercise, maybe they would, uh, maybe things would be a little more harmonious. But part of the problem, perhaps, is that things become so sort of stuck that you don't feel you're... And I recognise this in other debates, too. So, uh, for example, an issue that's much more um, argued about in the US than here would be um, uh, abortion, whereas in a country like the UK, that feels re relatively settled as an, as an issue. Um, but in the US, obviously, it's a much more live debate over that. But I always feel that the two people aren't having the same argument. And it's partly because it's an emotional one. It's partly simply that they're not acknowledging that the other side doesn't see life beginning in the same place as they do. But actually, if they tried to see the other side, they might actually get further towards having an argument that actually 
move things forward a bit. And perhaps that's true with Brexit too, and and maybe Trump and and some of his policies. That because we have such an aversion to a, a section of the electorate has such an aversion to an emotional aversion to things, they can't strip that out and think okay, but we would should try at least to see the other side or to understand it because they're so repulsed by sections of it. And perhaps that's a sign of the times we're living in. Right. But that's something that you should learn to overcome because you might say, okay, I mean, that's the political realm and people will do what they're going to do. And it's very emotional. I, you know, I, I think that it's good to try to see the other side. You know, on abortion, it's pretty easy to see the other side. If you have these religious beliefs and feel that it's murder. I don't, so I don't, you know, I don't vilify the people. I go, well, well, they think it's murder. That's why they feel that way. Uh, so at least you can see it. But for you as an individual, if you want to uh, grow and be creative and broaden your thinking, uh, you don't have to accept those other things. But if you make yourself try to see them, really research shows that that will broaden your thinking in other areas. They've done interesting experiments where people are exposed to crazy or obviously wrong ideas, and they are meant, you know, forced to just look at them. And then they're given tests of problem solving and creativity, and they do, having been exposed to just to more craziness, they do better in solving other problems where maybe a more original idea is needed. So, it, 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 what's interesting is that it seems to transfer to other realms. If you can make yourself just generally, ex- even expose yourself to things that you don't believe in, you know, on one level, just look at things that are different, but, but even on a higher level, expose yourself to things you don't even, that you, that you don't believe in. And, um, it, it tends to just broaden your, your thinking in general. And those filters tend to let more stuff through and you'll, you'll have better ideas. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And you talk about sort of liberating the mind a bit. That obviously leads to that feeling that, you know, you're not so tethered by... um, I think Hannah Arendt calls it frozen thoughts. Frozen, frozen yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're not sort of tethered to all those deeply held beliefs and that actually leads your mind into new, exciting... Yeah, and she made the connection really between political... Of course, she was a political philosopher, but between the political and the, the creative because she was specifically talking about uh, Nazi Germany and how it, you know people had certain assumptions and a certain way of thinking and, and that stopped them from... They weren't skeptical enough of where the country was going, which I think there's some parallels in the U.S. today. Um, and they didn't, they didn't question whatever the patriotism and their, 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 the cultural beliefs. And that was frozen thinking, kept them from seeing things that maybe seem obvious to people, like, for instance, later or in other countries who look at them. And so it was very important to liberate your mind. And But that's the same thing in physics. I mean, one story I, I, I love that... It comes from the turn of the century. Again, it was all with Newtonian thinking, which had been so triumphant for hundreds of years. And then this guy is uh, interested in the kind of light that things that are heated up and glowing give off. Um, the light bulbs had just been invented around the turn of around 1900, and the incandescent light bulb, it's heat, it gives off light. And the predictions of Newton's theories uh, and electricity and magnetism didn't match what they were what they were observing was given off. That's called black body radiation problem. Those, uh, so that's called black body radiation. And, and this guy, Sir James Jeans, a famous Englishman, you know, came up with his beautiful theory of this based on Newton's laws and electricity and magnetism. And it's totally wrong. This other guy comes up and, and, and doesn't accept that. That's, that's how physics makes the, the progress. They go, it's very hard. I mean, it's easy to say, but it's very hard to do. And everyone around you believes something. And they're all following, you know, the, 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 the standard uh, ideas to say, think differently to allow yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contradict that. And there's like peer pressure, there's, it's hard, so it's, but it's very important in physics. He came up with this new theory, didn't understand what really much about it, but he got the new theory, explained the, the, the radiation perfectly, perfectly. Someone goes to James Jeans and says, what do you think of this other guy's theory now? Because his matches the data perfectly and yours doesn't match at all. And he says, yeah, I know that, but I still like mine. <laughs> well, the, the punchline is that this guy's name was Max Planck, and the new theory is quantum theory. And today, no one remembers James Jeans, you know, outside of us physicists, but people have heard of Max Planck and certainly of quantum theory. And that's what you want. You want the quantum theories in your life. You don't realize a lot of, just you in general, people don't realize sometimes whether they're happy or sad or in between. They, they, they could have maybe a 10 times happier or more rewarding life if they would make certain changes, but they never question the assumptions of their life because they're afraid to or they don't even think to. And it takes courage. Mm. How do we get that courage? By doing these things that I'm talking about, really, by, by uh, um, exposing yourself, realizing that, that, that you, you know, realize that the world isn't going to end, sometimes just to realize that you'll be happy both ways. 
Um, now, to make a big change, uh, depending on what the change is, I mean, the, the, mag- the harder, the, the bigger the magnitude, the, the greater the potential for, for new happiness, but the greater the risk. Um, but you have, to, you have to think about it and, and sometimes convince yourself that, that, that taking risks is okay. I'm not saying if you're totally happy and satisfied to throw it all out. But the first thing to do is to question, are you? you know, because a lot of people go along in life and don't realize that they're not. Right. And then they get to be older and they look back. Why did I do that for the last 20 years? Right. So um, it's it takes some courage and introspection. And you we talked earlier about how elastic thinking sort of separates us from other species. Obviously, also separates us from um, the computing, um, because clearly computers can't can't do this sort of, I guess, it would be elastic processing rather than thinking. But um, but you talked in the book with, with regards to creativity about how you know people uh, can get computers now to generate sort of fake Mozart or whatever it is. Um, but we don't actually think of that as creative because by its nature it's derivative. They're sort of like the you know the artist who just rips off other styles. We don't think of that as as creating anything. We we think of it as actually sort of well ripping something off. Um, how do we? I mean, do do you think one day computers will be capable of of creating truly creating something, or is that outside a realm of, um, and, and is that something that will always separate us from machine? Well, that's a, a fascinating uh, question, and traditionally, computers have no hope really of elastic processing uh, because the way traditional computers work is a programmer designs a program that that accepts the data and then cranks through certain rules and puts, gives you an output. And so that's all, you know, what I said earlier about how you have to frame the problem, create what your goals, what are the questions you ask, what's the, what's the approach. The programmer is doing all that. The computer is just applying the logic, which it was built to do. It's a logic machine, uh, and it's creating, it's coming to an endpoint. And if you're a really great programmer and you have a very fast machine and a lot of money behind you, you can have a computer that, creates Mozart-like stuff, but you're putting the rules of Mozart into it. Uh, and uh, the big blue, the machine the, that beat Kasparov, the, the reigning human champion in chess, was that kind of machine too. So they can do very impressive things, but that's not creative. Now, in the, just the last few years, uh, the, something else has come up in computer science and really exploded and uh, create a revolution called neural net programming and deep learning. Um, now that is in the right track. So in, in, in those, 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 that approach, uh, programmers try to mimic what's happening in the human brain. The human brain is 100 billion neurons. Each neuron is a electronic, electric component that gets certain signal and when it hits a threshold, puts out other signals. So it's accepting from some and putting out signals to others and each one, when it gets a threshold, it fires and somehow those simple rules lead to our thoughts and our behavior and all our consciousness. That's a very powerful, amazingly magical, powerful thing. And uh, programmers are now trying to mimic that with computers, much, much orders of magnitude simpler. Instead of 100 billion, there might be 100, but they're putting components together and uh, in, a, in, a, in a nonlinear, intertwined way, and they're setting it up in a way that these systems, um, which is the complex thing to do, but can, can play chess or do other things and, and learn by failure, right? 
learn by mistake or by success. And just by playing a millions of games, they pro- these machines actually program themselves just like a baby does when it's learning to crawl or see or think. And those, uh, though they're very primitive right now, have had amazing success. I mean, they can now beat the other machine, the other chess machine, for instance. So the best chess players are now the neural net ones. And they are actually, um, you know, they, they are actually capable of creative, imaginative thought. They, they, they don't, these machines are somehow through their tremendous evolutionary learning aspects are able to frame and, 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 and frame problems and goals and issues in some way that we don't even understand. Uh, what's interesting, one of the most interesting things about them is the programmer doesn't know when it plays chess and the computer does something, it has the, the, the programmers have no idea why it did that. It's a very highly nonlinear interactions inside there that are going on as the thing is evolving. It's its its, its own strategy. It's not the old way where, well, I did that because I told it in this situation to do that, right? And these are amazing. So these have the hope of being like biological systems some eventually, right? Let's just remember that they're so far much more primitive than the human brain that your question about will they ever rival us, I don't know the answer, but I, I know that not in the foreseeable future because they have to get a lot, you know, many orders of magnitude more complex before they could have that c- capability. I suppose we're getting at the heart of what being a human is and how it separates us. So at the start, obviously, we talked about, um, you know, our differences between us and animals. And, and I think Jonathan Swift has a line about humans that were sort of capable of rationality. But then, of course, computers in theory were only capable of rationality. They weren't capable of irrationality, which is also part of what, you know, the great humanity uh, sort of novel thing. That's what sort of sets us apart in contrast um, to, to computers at the moment. But if that line becomes blurred, I mean, could we actually theoretically have computers creating art that is actually new one day? I think that the the neural net computers could theoretically do that. I don't see why not in some sense the roughly, I mean, very roughly speaking, you know, similar to the, to an animal brain. Uh, but I, mean, I don't see cockroaches creating art, or I don't see elephants creating art. Uh, um, I don't know. It will hum- you know what what kind of brain you need to create art? I, I don't know. And um, and another difference is that we've evolved in 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 the wild in a system where we're faced with a constant variety of different problems, whereas the computers, as they're being evolved to learn things, are in a much more structured situation. So will they ever develop this kind of irrationality um, that you're talking about? I, I don't know if, if they will, because what that's good for is sometimes um, it takes you into a weird direction that logic might not, and you discover something. And uh, if that... And once that's built into your brain, a certain amount of fuzziness, a certain amount of uh, uh, no reason, I'm just going to do this. You know that that that's very important in making new discoveries. And, and mathematicians have described how that works in exploring mathematical landscapes. That that if you want to find, let's say, the highest point somewhere, you don't just start climbing the mountain. When you get up to the top, go, oh, I can't. You know, I'm at the highest point. You have to. There might be another one over there, but you got to go down first, which might be irrational, right? And um, Humans and animals evolving in a while do that. Computers that are evolved, that are learning in a very structured situation that we're still setting up for them, they might not do that. So I don't know.
but they have the the, the at least the, I think the possibility that they that they could. Talk to about survival of the most adventurous, as it were. But do you think there's also a, a thing with our species of survival of the most elastic? And you have a story at the end that might illustrate of, of the book that might illustrate that clearly elastic thinking does give you a, a vast advantage, and um, particularly in very troubled times and, and difficult times. Well, that was a, a very, it was a sad and very, uh, very specific story of how when when you're in a time of turmoil, uh, especially that kind of thinking is, is needed probably, you know, many times a day. Most of us are lucky enough if we live in the developed world not to face uh, a lot of challenges each day. We, to us, a challenge is, oh, I missed the bus and now I have to wait in the cold or whatever. I forgot my scarf or something like that. But uh, in a lot of the world and in a lot of the past, uh, it's been a lot, the, the situations have been a lot less pleasant. And that story is about my dad, who was uh, uh, in a uh, uh, in Poland after the Nazis invaded in the Jewish ghetto. He ended up in a concentration camp. But before that, he was uh, working in a factory. He was in the underground, and uh, in the Jewish underground. And he was also in the factory. The Germans had him in charge of these kids who were doing some kind of labor. And he had a group of 30 kids that he was um, in, in charge of. And uh, every morning at 5 a.m., they would have a, a roll call, and the uh, Gestapo would come by, and they would count the, make sure they're all there, and send them off to start the day. And my father noticed one day that um, he had 31, <laughs> and uh, that's not <laughs> that's not allowed. He gained and a child. He yeah. gained a child, and, and that could cause them all to be killed, or or maybe one by one until the new one steps forward or God knows whatever uh, they would, how they would react. And uh, he didn't notice it in time. And the, the guy came forward and, um, you know, asked what, 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 why is there an extra kid here? And my father couldn't, he couldn't come up with the explanation, but the new kids came up and made up something that convinced the, 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 you know, uh, the officer. And, and then he said, from now on you have 31 but um, the ability to, especially under that pressure, you know, to come up with, uh, it was just a totally made-up story, but it's close enough that it's believable and, uh, and uh, you know, non-threatening and all that, you know, that my father couldn't do that in the time, but the kid with, the, he was 10 years old, I think, you know, with his elastic brain just, just did that. Um, it's just an illustration of... Uh, you know, I said, I said in, in the book that, uh, you know, we're not the only animal that kills its own. You know, it happens a lot. Chimpanzees are very brutal, for instance. Uh, but we are the only animal that can be convinced not to kill by a story. And uh, it, it's something special and very different in our brains that, that we can tell stories, or especially that we can make up stories. And that's just part of the whole um, apparatus we have for having new ideas and invention and innovation. Well, I think that story illustrates um, the the power of what you're talking about in the book with 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 thought and how it can really um, determine uh, our futures. Um, thank you very very much for joining us, and um, it's been great chatting. Thank you. It's been fun. Elastic: The Power of Flexible Thinking by Leonard Mladenov is published by Penguin.